0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got longtime Blister reviewer and my good friend, Paul Forward, back on the podcast. Paul lives in Girdwood, Alaska, where he's a lead guide for Chugach Powder Guides He's also a doctor and works in the city of Kotzebue, near the Arctic Circle. He's a father and a husband, and he's a hunter who only hunts with a traditional bow. Paul and I have talked about his reasons why he does that over on our Crafted podcast, and that's a conversation worth listening to, so we'll include a link to that Crafted conversation in the show notes of this episode. But today... Paul and I are discussing, briefly, our recent respective injuries, then we talk about some of Paul's favorite ski movies, and then we talk about broadening the tent of who and what counts as the outdoor community, and we discuss some practices that we think make sense to adopt across the ski, snowboard, and bike worlds. This is a fun conversation with plenty of food for thought, And as you'll hear Paul say, we're hoping to crowdsource some ideas and some information from all of you. So listen up and then hit us up if you've got some thoughts on today's conversation. This episode is presented by Taos Ski Valley. Taos is the world's first and only certified B Corp ski area. And Taos is also the only resort in North America to offer a weekly Ski Week program, where you can learn to ski better. This program goes back to a late 1950s tradition brought over from Europe, where you are put with a group of people of similar abilities, and you get on snow Sunday through Friday with the same ski instructor each morning for two and a half hours this is a really cool program and whether you're looking to get more comfortable carving groomers or skiing moguls or trees or steeps well taos has really excellent options for all of those types of terrain i know because i have skied there approximately a million times and getting to hit some or all of that terrain with an instructor is a really great way not only to improve your skiing but to be shown some of the best spots on the mountain. So go to skihouse.com to learn more about their Ski Week program and sign up and then check out one of my favorite places to ski in the world. And now let's get to my conversation with Paul Forward. Here we go. Well, Paul Forward... Lovely having you back on the Blister Podcast. Today is Friday, November 17th. It is actually 10.30 p.m. my time. But let's not bury the lead here. You skied pow today. Tell us all about it.
1: Andrew and I, my brother Andrew and I, went up to Turning and Pass today, and we got some a couple laps of quality, deep powder skiing with, uh, I would say, remarkable coverage. In fact, I would say that's gotta be among the deepest snowpacks I've ever skied in mid November. Uh, up here. It was pretty awesome. Alders are covered and bent over. Um, you can ski pretty much anywhere. It feels like it feels like January up there.
0: Wow. Okay. Hey, you know, I skied Turnigan pass. I know you did with you. It was delightful. <laughs> it just, that's how I just, I tell people, yeah, I, yeah, I ski turning and pass. That's what I tell it was, people. It was about. awesome. That was, that was pretty good runs we had there. It was super fun. What ski were you on today? I mean, we might as well get a little, you know, gear talk out of the way. I didn't know we were going to do this, but I was skiing on the woven
1: Harrier 108 with the Grizzly 95 gram Rando race binding on it. <laughs> with the with the technica um, the peak Carbon Boots. It was not wow. a heavy setup.
0: okay. <laughs> was this your first time on that setup? I mean, no, not
1: really. I've skied the skis a little bit. Um, I skied them off and on a little bit last year. And um, and I've had those... I've tried those bindings on a couple different pairs of skis. Um, so, no, I've skied all the stuff before. And like always, I had, like, a different skin on each ski because I'm always doing that because I'm always... <laughs> well, I'm always... Playing with stuff a little bit.
0: <laughs> always tinkering, always testing. Always tinkering. Okay. Yeah, it was a, wow. a rare day that I had the same boot on each foot, honestly. Was this day one? Was this your first day of the Oh, season? yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Day one on skis. Okay. Yeah, as Andrew said, we had baby deer legs. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's what it felt like. It felt a little wobbly.
0: You know, many of us, Paul, our first day on skis, we're going to be skiing, you know, kind of barely built up groomers type of thing so when you just come on here right away and you're like yeah first day of the year we were skiing amazing pow we'll either all feel really jealous or just decide we don't like you i don't know how it's really gonna go
1: well we had to walk for it but we, we, i mean that's pretty much how we always start up i mean most of my life the first days of the skis and are powder days right because you you wait till it snows a little bit and then you go start hiking and you ski pow that's how it works here but we did get this is this is a this was an out-of-the-box storm though i mean we went from essentially no snow to it's at sea level to four inches of water in really one storm i mean i think i think thompson passed down a bit got like 70 inches out of that storm cycle so it was it was pretty out of the box for sure but we're it's like zero to 60 we're in it's full season like they I saw the it looked like they had the groomers up at Alaska today starting to shape up the mountain.
0: Appreciate that report. Ski season is coming quick. Opening day here in Crested Butte is Tuesday, the twenty second. Oh, sick! That's awesome. Yeah, I'm. I'm technically not supposed to go skiing. Right. I think I told you the other day. You did little little fracture going on. So we'll we'll see how we're we'll see how we're doing. But um, doctor and I we had a bit of an argument. She's like, "Don't ski opening day," and I was like, "No." And then she just looked at me weird, like, "Dude, like, I'm kind of an expert on this. Just why don't like?" And then she's like, "Look, I'm not your mom. Do what you want." But um, it was kind of a funny interaction in the in the clinic. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I heard you've got your own weird injury. Oh yeah, look, look at my finger. See that? Okay, that's not that's not true. That's that's as straight as you can make that's that.
1: As straight as like, I could, I can passively straighten it, but otherwise it's just I mean, could you even do that with your finger? Try to even do that. Try to try to bend just can't no, see, you can't do it. (laughs) It's only you can only do that when the when the tendon is interrupted. (laughs) Or the tendon sheath is interrupted. How did you do that? Uh I was I was just I just got back from a from a hunting trip and it was in the dark and I was crossing this kind of wet, swampy area. And I had kind of gotten across it in the morning because it had been frozen and I thought I could still walk across it. And I fell through to my waist and like pitched forward with my backpack on and my bow in my hand and jammed my hand into the frozen tundra. And I didn't even, it really didn't even hurt that much. I felt like a little twinge, but nothing like unusual. And then I got back to my tent like an hour later and I took my glove off and I was like, oh, that's
0: not right. (laughs) Fingers
1: aren't supposed to look like that.
0: <laughs> no, and it and it never really started hurting. I mean, it's it was sore and it's like
1: still a little bit sore, like right at the joint. I mean, oftentimes this injury is associated with a small. It's called an avulsion fracture, like a small fracture of the bone yeah. at this this joint or this bone right here. But um, I haven't had an X-ray yet. I uh, maybe I'll try to get one one of these days. But I'm doctors were terrible patients and terrible at taking care of themselves, so. <laughs> I like, I signed up for life and I was, I've been trying to get a life insurance policy and which is hard because I'm a heli-ski guide and uh, I had to go through uh, some questionnaires today and, and they, one of the questions was, do you, you know, see a, do you have a primary care doctor that you see? <laughs> I was like, uh, does do, my, does I count for myself? <laughs> does like hang out with my wife in the evenings count? <laughs> It's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah.
0: For those listening, don't just, you know, just take care of yourself. Get Get yourself. Get yourself primary care I don't really have a primary. I don't have one either, man. What's wrong with us? (laughs) I don't know.
1: Men of our age should (laughs) have a doctor.
0: (laughs) No. Things to work on. Hey, I've been meaning to ask you this. We just launched this Blister Cinematic Podcast, so I've got kind of ski movies on the brain a lot. And... I was wondering whether you yourself have a favorite ski movie or maybe a couple of them. Strong opinions on this front? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I used to
1: watch ski movies, uh, Alaska skiing, like I was studying for an exam. Like I, I wanted to figure out how those guys did it. And so I would just watch them until I would – I did the same thing with kayaking movies. till so they like wore out just watching how – especially the big mountain stuff in Alaska, the heli-skiing stuff – like, how do they get down the mountain so fast? How do they make, how do they do it? So yes, I, I, I admit lately I haven't been that excited about watching ski movies. I don't really follow them anymore. And I just will you know, occasionally watch them if they pop up, but I used to watch, I used to just devour ski movies and I would just buy every company's movie as soon as it was available on, you know, additionally on like VHS and on DVD <laughs> now streaming. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I still have a pile of VHS and DVD
0: ski movies sick okay you haven't answered the question though
1: oh favorites <laughs> um you know I've, i think about the ski movies that like that got me like really psyched on skiing and that i watched the most repeatedly and there was a movie um from around gosh i bet it was around 2005 I'm just kind of guessing there, plus or minus a year or two. But it was it was like post-fat ski era. So it had to have been somewhere in there, like oh like like proper fat like skis over a hundred underfoot yeah. era. Um, so it had to be like early two thousands, but it was called waiting game. You ever heard of it? Mm-mm. And despite the fact that there's a lot of Jackson Hole footage in there, I still really liked it.
0: <laughs>
1: wow. Shot fire. <laughs> okay <laughs> but uh all right but they uh they uh it's this crew of uh guys in there you know there some of them are people that are you know are pro skiers that you would know and um i think most of them were and uh the segment uh, the i think they're mostly in Valdez but the alaska segment there like just really got me fired up like i was just i don't know i mean they were they're all exceptional skiers and athletes but for some reason watching that, I was like, I think I can, I, I, I'm like, by no means saying I'm anywhere near as good a skier as those guys. Mm-hmm. But for something about watching that, I was like, I can do this. Like this looks, I can, I can go that fast on those mountains. Like that just looks so awesome. Um, I had a few f- few friends that were making movies around here and, um, and skiing like that. And I was like, yeah, like, that's how I, that's how I wish that's how I, in my mind, I wish I look when I ski, you know, it like those guys, there's a couple of lines in those movies and like, like kind of spiny lines in Valdez uh, just like that is what skiing is it just looks so awesome um and for me always like every ski movie i honestly i just fast forward to the alaska parts and then as soon as that part's over i fast forward to like another alaska part <laughs> Jeez, dude okay <laughs> i'm not even lying. i love the i love watching people ski up here i just love it i just uh i and i i you know for a long time i you know i hadn't really skied outside of the state and i just couldn't really relate to like you know the other stuff i just wasn't that interested in it like now i like all skiing i love going skiing everywhere i love skiing groomers and bumps and all that stuff but i was just like this is what i'm in it for that's what I and i so waiting game there was a sequel to it called respect which was like i haven't seen it in a long time but um that was like a snuff film for skiing. It was just like, I, I haven't seen in a long time, but my recollection of it, it was just all these messed up avalanches, these big, scary, like you surprised people walked away from them avalanches over and over again in all the Alaska sections. I was like, whoa, it was like aptly titled, but it was pretty gnarly. It was just like, these guys are out of control. Like, I mean, it was just that must have been a bad, bad season up here that year. I don't really remember what was going on, but. Man, it was like so scary. It was like a snuff film. I didn't even really like, like watching it, but it was interesting. Uh, and then I never saw anything more from those guys. Uh, that must have been the end of it. Or maybe they got absorbed by I think the one guy um, was, ended up being like one of the main cinematographers for TGR at some point who was in those things. Um, and then the other uh, influential ski movie um, that I just think is just awesome uh, and has no Alaska skiing in it is uh, Gaffney's 1999. Have you seen that? It's awesome.
0: Yeah, we're gonna definitely be talking about 1999 on Blister Cinematic for sure.
1: Uh, the you know era, you know, there's a little bit of like homophobia in there. <laughs> it's probably like 2024 would not be acceptable in a ski movie. When you watch it, you cringe a little bit at a few things, but the story's awesome. That it was the first movie I think I ever saw where there was like, you know, like a little bit of self-deprecating humor. Like you start watching it immediately in the opening credits, it's all of them crashing. And you're just like, yes, these are like cool. These are people who like, have a sense of humor. Um, and so obviously, you know, that, and then like the, I don't know, there's just a lot of good sections, but then the thing for me that was, the two parts for me that were really influential, one was, um, Rob Gaffney, um, the late, great Rob Gaffney, who I never actually got to meet. I've, I've hung out with Scott a number of times up here and he's an awesome dude. Um, and I even told Scott when I met him that his brother was an inspiration for me. Cause I was going through med school about, you know, seven or eight years after he did. And, uh, he was like the, the, the guy that I had knew of, who went through med school in a way that I thought was like, acceptable where he like still skied a ton and like had had his like outdoor recreation life and and i mean watching the footage of him skiing when he was in just coming out of med school like i definitely wasn't skiing like that but freaking it's so awesome that story of rob turning up in there and he's like the guy's got a beautiful turn i mean he's just a beautiful skier to watch I, I, i he's just he's a phenomenal skier and so watching rob gaffney tread is super cool and then how many ski movies have a sweet kayak segment Sweet whitewater kayak segment, Ottawa River, classic. I mean, it's pretty awesome. It's
0: all your favorite things.
1: Yeah, and I make he, he made the very apt connection that like whitewater kayaking was was like the summer equivalent of skiing. Somehow we've gone off on this mountain bike thing, which I don't understand at all. But kayaking is the appropriate summer sport for for skiers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's maybe a topic for another time. Good good debate. You're hilarious. <laughs> uh, and I have like five friends in Crested Butte who absolutely would love to be on this right now. And this would be the only thing we would be talking about and they would very much agree with you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but anyway. Let's do it. Yeah. Schedule it. Another time. Schedule it. Yeah, But that's not what we're here to really talk about. We are here to in some ways, continue an ongoing conversation that you and I have been having for a while. And frankly, it feels a little bit hard to even frame it. I mean, you did just mention you were coming back from a hunting trip. We've talked about the fact that you are a hunter. You are a bow hunter. Uh, I think we've talked about that on some previous Blister podcasts. Yeah, Yep. We did a, we did a crafted episode that I thought was pretty remarkable where you kind of took us through sort of a lot of the history of traditional bows and talked about some of that, but let's talk a bit or sum up if you could get us started with kind of the conversation here. And, um, again, I'm going to apologize for the not so articulate question, but, um, Take it away, Paul.
1: Yeah. So we were talking before this podcast about the greater outdoor recreation kind of, I, I hate to use the word industry because that implies like all the commercialism side of it, but the guy, yeah. maybe community is a better the broader word. community, the community, community. Yeah. the people who yeah, love yeah. to do stuff outside. Right. And it seems, it feels like, and this is just me talking, not representing anyone else, but it feels like there's a bit of a divide just like, unfortunately, so many other, this other divide in our country. And it kind of falls in the same place between people who are hunting and fishing and people who are doing all the other stuff that, um, you know, that are all the things we talk about, biking, skiing, kayaking, hiking. Um, and there's a lot of people that do both. There's that Venn diagram. There's a lot of overlap in the middle. And I think increasingly like in places like where you live and like where I live and in Montana, I think there's a lot of people that fall in the overlap of that Venn diagram. But I think especially as you get, in my mind, as you get closer to the the coasts, the dichotomy is more is bigger. You know, like uh, East Coast, Southeast. There's, and I think, and maybe I bet in the Northeast. There's a lot of hunter skier types. I would, would be my guess. Um, and then, like you get into California, Washington. I think there's more of a divide in those places. Unfortunately, Idaho, Oregon, um, probably still anyway. And uh, you know, we're the places that we love and the things we love to do are all really reliant on, in my mind, um, access to public land, clean water, clean air. And then the kind of elephant in the room is the implications of climate change on all these things, right? You know, we skiers talk about climate change, you know, it feels like every time we drink a beer, we talk about climate change and what's going to happen next winter and kayakers. And I think that conversation comes up a lot. And, I kind of have a foot in both worlds, as, as do many people that are probably listening to this. Um, you know, I sit on the board of directors for the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, which is a, a species-specific conservation group. And uh, it's a hunter-based, for sure. Our membership is largely hunters. Our board is all hunters. And, um, and you know, we, we talk about those things a lot, right? What's affecting the species and the animals that we care about? And I think there's a lot of commonality there, but I don't see that many situations. And I'd love to query anyone who's listening to this. Like if, if you if you have good examples of organizations or groups or people where there's like a cool collaboration between those kind of two communities, I, I'm just personally curious and be interested to learn more about it. But I don't see a lot. You know, there's something called the Outdoor Alliance, which has some, some a little bit of things put in both worlds there um, that I'm learning more about. Um but the, the approach is, is definitely different, right? So like I was asking you earlier, you know, how many, how many um, outdoor uh, gr- uh, organizations, you know, that have a mission to, to protect or preserve or enhance opportunity are you a member of? And you said none. And I think that's the case for most. I mean, probably some of us, like, you know, uh, subscribe to or donate to, like, protect our winners sometimes. I think like, I think
0: we're on that program. That's the answer for for me.
1: Yeah, totally. Same here. And I think like in the climbing world, they have the access fund, which I think is my understanding is I'm sure there's a lot of focus. I don't know that much about the access fund. I should learn more about it. But I think the focus there is definitely on, you know, with the, the, when I started climbing and learned about the access fund, at least at that time the focus was on for just that access, right? Like making sure that places didn't get closed down, that like the access was maintained, people could still go climb on certain in certain areas. I'm sure there's a component there that's about conservation, preservation. Um, but in the hunting world, it feels like most people I know are part of these different groups. And in the hunting world, they're species specific. It's almost kind of like uh, to use the kind of like the old forests and trees analogy, like the, the, uh non-hunting the the kayaker, i wish we need to have a term that they in the hunting world they call those people non-consumptive outdoor users which i think is a terrible term the like backpacker skier climber mountain biker types non-consumptive it's it's weird um so i don't know what we should call them but that group of people um uh you know aren't tip, aren't as a, commonly a part of a group you know and maybe part of people are like part of sierra club or um, natural resource defense council um but um, on the other side, you have these, like, species-specific groups. And most hunters I know are parts of multiple of them. You know, they're on the wild they, – they are paid their dues to the Wild Sheep Foundation. If they live in Montana or western states, they're – you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has a massive membership and funding. The Wild Turkey Foundation um, or Federation – and there's federations and foundations, and there's some significance there. Somebody listening to this will probably be incensed, that I don't know the difference – Um, but there's a Teddy Roosevelt conservation partnership, which does really cool stuff. In my opinion, um, there's all these groups and, um, and there's backcountry hunters and anglers, which started out as a, as a, um, public land advocacy thing that has a massive membership and has chapters in pretty much every state in the country. I think at least every state that has wild areas from East to West. And so, um, I feel like there's an opportunity for those of us in the, that aren't, you know, part of those organizations, you know, probably like a lot of people listening to this, when Patagonia sends me an email, it says, you know, put your, make your voice heard to protect the Arctic or whatever it is. I click on the link and I write to my senator. I probably do that twice a week for all the different email lists I'm on. Um, but I think uh, we probably have an opportunity to have our collective voices be more powerful on things like climate and protecting wild places and, um, if we were more active in those things, even just paying some membership dues and voting on elections that have to do with like who the leadership of those organizations are, because some of those organizations have thousands of members and like, especially in the hunting world. And they, you know, some of them pay for lobbyists and uh, they get thing they get things done. And I don't think like, I would love it if, unfortunately the way our world works and, you know, whatever post citizens United and all this, all the, all the ways that our government's influenced. If we had, you know, if, if we, the skiers of America had fancy lobbyists, which I'm sure the ski industry, I'm sure the ski resort industry does. I'm sure the, the um, I, I would suspect they have lobbyists. I suspect they have fancy lobbyists going to Washington. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you would know.
0: There's maybe less of that, happening than you might think, I think is the answer, at least as of today. And again, if somebody listening to this is like, actually, you're wrong about that, please reach out and we'll talk about it because, you know, this is something that Auden Schendler, who is the senior vice president of sustainability for Aspen Ski Co., this is something that Auden has been extremely vocal about that. The snow sports industry has not come together in the way that it still needs to to be lobbying like that. And Auden Auden doesn't mince a lot of words. Um, and I think that I mean it's like yeah, for ski areas in general, and think of them all across the world. They ought to be more self interested than almost any other business out there, to make this happen. And at least according to Auden, that's why he's like, we aren't seeing remotely enough on that front. So uh, that's just what I'm going off of, uh, having read a lot of Auden's stuff. Uh, and again, would be happy to hear from other people you know, to say, in fact, these are the efforts uh, that are happening. So anyway, just a little caveat on that.
1: Well, and I so so if and if that's true, if we really aren't doing that, if there's really not if that's not happening for the you know skiers and bikers and kayakers and hikers of the world, it should be. I mean, when I when I went to the Wild Sheep Foundation's sheep show meeting in Reno last year, representing the Goat Alliance, I met paid lobbyists for sheep sheep foundation chapters, and they they have relationships with with their congresspeople, and they go. To DC and they go to their state capitals and they lobby for things that that, that benefit sheep and sheep hunters. And uh, if we're not doing that, we're missing an opportunity. Because unfortunately, as much as it's as much as it sucks, in my opinion, that that's how it works in our country. It seems to me like that's how it works in our country. Like if you don't have lobbyists, yeah, that's right. You know, pitching your and and potentially you know bringing money to the table, which again it sucks. That's how it works. It, it irritates me so much. Like that, that's how our, um, small D democracy works uh, that, but it is, and I think we should be doing it. And, you know, in the, um, this came up at, in one of the blister summer summit panel conversations, uh, that I was part of one of the criticisms that they make <clears throat> is that we bikers, skiers, hikers, climbers, kayakers don't, have a, a dedicated money from our you know purchase of our gear or use of our things going toward conservation efforts whereas in the hunting community they have the Pittman robertson wildlife conservation act which every time you buy something related to hunting and even not really like you know right now for, for reasons we shouldn't get into this podcast firearm sales have been through the roof for the better part of the last decade and in particular the last three or four years in firearms and ammo. And I just spoke to one of my good friends who's a a biologist for, for wild sheep, for doll sheep in the Alaska department fishing game about, you know, funding for some projects. he said, he said, Oh, funding, I have all I ever. And he's like, I need personnel. He's like, I have so much money. I don't even know what to do with it because there, there's been so much ammo sales He's like, we have more money to do more projects. He's like, we just need manpower to use the money. And part of it is, is that the money gets funny. The part of the calculation as he's explaining to me is that it gets allocated based on your um, land area of wilderness area or area that you, that your particular agency serves. So the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, since we're like a third of the entire United States or something like that, they to get tons of money and um, which is great. But like. We should, you know, I would be so happy if every time I bought a Gore-Tex jacket or a pair of bindings um, or whatever, a new inner tube, spare tube for my bike or some sealant, that that stuff went into, like, you know, some of of that money went into, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even care if it went into lobbyists going to Capitol Hill and saying, like, hey, I represent the outdoor industry, and they're really worried about what's happening with development, encroachment, climate change, Clean water. Um, I feel like it's a missed opportunity, and I think like I've heard the term backpack tax used before. We should have that. Like that should exist. We would. We, we potentially could have a huge pot of money that could make real change because the outdoor industry is is I can't remember the number, but it's like billions of dollars. And uh, I think that if we took a couple pennies off the top, uh, you know, it's also a progressive type of tax where it's you know the more it you know it affects wealthier part of the population more, which I think is personally, that's philosophically okay with me. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: And so I I would love to see that happen. Um, You know, if anybody knows about efforts being made to do that, I'm sure somebody out there is working on this, that'd be pretty cool to hear about. But so that's one, one point. And then the second side is, and this is just me talking, I see opportunity for those of us who care about things like climate change and wild places to not just be involved with whatever, the Access Fund, Protect Our Winners, American Whitewater, I should have said American Whitewater, that's another awesome, that is an awesome organization that works on lots of fronts. And in my mind, that's one of the best ones out there for, for like the, the non-hunting side. If, if, you, if you enjoy rivers, join American Whitewater. It's a great organization that does a lot of good stuff. Um, But uh, we should think about joining the groups that, you know, like if you live in Colorado, you, you wouldn't be the worst thing if you joined the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and knew what they were talking about and maybe had your voice heard because they are buying land, controlling land. They are influencing, influencing legislation and, there's definitely, I've seen language, you know, from, from the Elk Foundation regarding how they handle uh, mountain bike access, mountain bike trails. You know, there's definitely membership there that doesn't understand biking or that's opposed to biking in certain places. And maybe the biking shouldn't be done in certain places, certain times of year for, for, you know, for elk conservation. But uh, I think that, I think that it would help in so many ways if we were more interested in what kind of the other side of the political and cultural divide is doing in the outdoors and went into it in a way that was, I'm not saying to go in there and like stage a coup (laughs) and take over and push our agenda on them. I'm saying to go in there and, and hear voices that also care about wild places and then collaborate and, I, you know, I would love it if people listening to this, and I'm not trying to make a pitch for the goat Alliance. I have no financial stake in that at all, but I would love it if we had more people who just love the fact that mountain goats exist or like to take pictures of mountain goats or value the fact that they get to see them sometimes when they're out skiing or climbing. I would love it if, if we had more of those voices in the goat Alliance, then, then, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the hunters, but then just people who are hoping that they get to shoot one someday. Um, and not that that's all the hunters are are in it for, but I would love to have a more, a wider diversity of voices and backgrounds involved in those organizations. And I think we'd be stronger for it. And I think, I also think just philosophically, like healing some of that crazy cultural divide we have right now, especially in some of our Western communities, you know, we all want, I think we all want clean water and we all want wild places and we all want wild animals around. And I think increasingly we all accept the fact that the climate is changing and really affecting and again again, i live in alaska where it's warming faster than anywhere on the planet right so that's really in my face up here i really see that despite the four feet of snow outside (laughs) i mean it is a real thing for us um but it is for all of you for you and for everyone else and that likes this stuff too i mean and so i would just like to see And, you know, I'd love to see some movement in that direction where we're not so divided and we have more common cause. And I think there are some groups that are – the Outdoor Alliance comes to mind. I know that there's people from both sides of the table there. Um, You you know, surveys have shown of of hunters done recently that like 60-plus percent of hunters are open to talking about climate change. And I think that that's a – you know, and those are people who live in – Largely, probably live in red states with red representatives, and those are places where, you know, we don't have to talk about other political issues. But if we can just get on the same page, at least that that like we're asking our representatives, whether we live in a red state or a blue state or a purple state, to care about this. I think that's a step in the right direction. And uh, you know, I I go to sleep every I, I I think about climate change constantly. It's like such a huge factor in my life. It affects. The community I serve as a doctor, it's hugely affecting them right now. It affects all the things I care about. And then I have a kid now. <laughs> and and I think that, you know, the politicians that are trying to get reelected every two to four years, when that's their motivation, like, it does not serve well the interests of my kid who I want to be able to, like, ski and see wild sheep in the mountains and not have a world falling apart from... Climate refugeeism in 30 or 40 years.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like the more serious we are about wanting to take action on that, on climate issues and get the attention of our federal leaders, state leaders, influence policy, and the rest. That's where, like, the more serious we are, the more serious you claim to be about that, that's where it just seems like to broaden the tent and to go, you know, to certain organizations that maybe some of us might look at and be like, yeah, I'm sure I am not on the same page politically as those people. Or maybe it's like, I'm sure I'm not on the same page politically as those idiots. Mm. Right. Like, we got to, like, don't talk about how much you care about this stuff if you're not willing to try to seriously, like, create a broader consensus. And as you've already spoken about really well, learn from maybe some of the better things and more effective things that are happening in some places and spaces where some folks might be inclined to be like, that's not what I view as progressive and yet it's like, actually, <laughs> that is more progressive and more effective than what we are or are not doing in the mountain bike space, broadly, you know, construed, you know, ski and snowboard. And um, so I think, I mean, that's, that's one of the main things that I wanted to do in this particular conversation and run the conversations we have, you know, off record about this stuff I just wanted to put that in part in front of people to get folks thinking about it. And I love how you have encouraged people to maybe look a bit broader at some of the organizations you know in their state to see where memberships make sense, to see where they might be able to get involved in addition to just acknowledging and realizing, oh, maybe I don't hunt myself or I don't like that stuff. But those folks are actually maybe putting some of the more of their money where their mouth is on some of these things and they deserve recognition for that. And we ought to try to learn from that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, totally. I think, I think the two main messages would be, um, you know, potentially c- consider getting involved in those organizations that you otherwise might not, or get involved in some organization, get your voice out there. If you care about access or, protection for wild places get 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 involved get your voice out there because you know there I feel like up here it's like whack-a-mole like there's always some threat to some part of our region up here like and I'm not saying we shouldn't have any development I'm, I'm certainly not saying that but I'm saying that we need to we our voices need to be heard when there's development you know when there's uh, whatever it is that's happening um, I also think that there's I have found that through hunting and involvement in hunting organizations, I have interacted with a lot of people with very opposite political or cultural views from my own. And uh, we're still friends. And I think I wonder, I often wonder how many people in our country have close relationships with people whose political views are opposite their own. And I think that, if we're ever going to, like, this is, like, pretty pretty touchy-feely, but if we're ever going to get past this point where we are right now, I think those kind of relationships are really important, you know, like not just when you see a truck with a hunting sticker on it in your mountain bike parking lot and you're like, oh, those idiots. Like, if you know somebody who does that stuff and, like, you know, like, again, I think there are people, There's there's a lot of overlap now, especially in, like, western mountain towns, but um, but I think if you start getting involved in these organizations, you're going to find people that aren't just the like kind of progressive types who ski and also go elk hunting. I think you're going to start finding people, you know, there's, there's going to be like ranchers and game wardens and people who um, have never gone skiing or biking. And I think creating some relationships, coming into it with an open mind, willingness to listen, um, which is hard. Uh, you know, it's a really hard thing to do, but I think, it has implications beyond just protecting the places that we care about. I really do. So that's point one, you know, get involved, think about getting involved outside of those traditional circles. Um, and I think there's probably going to be some reluctance in those organizations if they start seeing a bunch of people an in influx, but I think it's good for them. I really do. Um, I think it's healthy. Um, like I said, I'd love to see it in the organizations that I'm involved with. And then uh, number two, I don't know. I don't know what it would take to to move the dial on this, but I think that we need to start, like you said, putting our money where our mouth is. I think whether that's a backpack tax, but we need to, to be creating like a big pots of money and then using it to advocate for the things we care about. Um, you know, it's like... With the live privileged lives, if the things that we're like most stressed about is losing our favorite skiing spot or mountain bike spot, or you know, or that we, are that the implications of climate change that make us the saddest, or that we're not going to ski as much powder anymore. But the the implications on society and the earth as a whole of even if that's your motivation of addressing those things are really positive, you know? So I think that even if selfishly we take the climate change fight to Washington, because we want to ski more pow, it it also benefits like the world's poorest, most vulnerable people (laughs) and places. (laughs) If, If we're, if we're, and so I would love to see a, backpack tax. I don't know who somebody out there who's listening, make it happen (laughs) or let me know how to do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or, um, let, let's talk. And I I'd love to learn more about how, in fact, some of those taxes got, became a thing in the hunting world. Right, I, I don't know that history. How did that come about?
1: It's a, a, probably that's probably a conversation for a, a, whole, a separate podcast and maybe someone who's more expert in it than I am. Um, but I can say that even that has been under attack recently. Um, there was a group of congressmen um, who uh, tried to get it shut down because they saw it as a tax on, and a um, they saw it as, as an infringement on the Second Amendment, basically because of the tax on firearms that got vehemently put down by bi- in a bipartisan effort um but you know i think that it's not even guaranteed that that money is always going to be there and if that money went away the research on fish and wildlife and birds and not just not just so people can shoot more of them just in general would dry up overnight and it would be have a mat take a massive toll on people studying ecosystems
0: well hey man I think I kind of want to leave it there for now. And I think that was a pretty good synopsis of, again, series of conversations we've been having for a while on some of this stuff. And, you know, mostly my goal here today was not to provide a bunch of definitive answers on this stuff, but definitely generate some food for thought. And I think we've given a bit of a call for action about, some some different things that people might go do now from this and I and I also hope some people write in and um, you know we've raised a couple questions where we've said like we don't exactly know how this works or that works or maybe there are organizations uh, that that we might not know about that are really doing good work along the lines that we're describing um, but I do think that, this is something that a lot of us could think more clearly about and even have it be more centered on our radars. So, yeah, so I appreciate you having that conversation. And does that feel okay to you to kind of leave it there?
1: Yeah, I think this is a good conversation to continue having and maybe we can get some more voices involved. Uh, but I think this is a great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because it's really, it's really important to me.
0: This is what we're going to do. We're going to wrap for now, but we are going to then have a conversation over on our Crafted podcast because we promised quite a while ago (laughs) that you were going to come on Crafted and talk. We did a conversation on Crafted about traditional bows, which was, it's a heck of an episode uh, if you haven't checked it out we said we'd do one on arrows, like the art of arrows. And um, you actually just got back from a trip to Kodiak Island, like just got back. And so I think maybe over on Crafted, we'll talk a bit about that trip, and then we'll get into the art of arrows. And that, folks, if you're interested, you'll be able to listen to that this coming Wednesday over on our Crafted podcast. So Paul, as always, I always appreciate our conversations. Thanks for this one. And um, Kodiak Island and Arrows. Sounds good. We'll Talk to you soon. Th- thanks so much for, uh, for indulging me here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And do let us know if you have information pertaining to some of the topics that we brought up in this conversation. And you can either hit Paul up directly or... Hit us up at info at blisterreview.com and we will get the articles or thoughts, etc. to Paul. And yeah, this is some big stuff and um, I hope it inspired a thought or two and I hope we do move toward this world of greater cooperation since we might not have every last thing in common, but we do have some really big significant shared interests here. On that note, I want to say thanks to Paul for another great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And we will catch you all, as we said, this coming Wednesday over on our Crafted podcast, where Paul and I are going to be diving in to the art and science of arrows. All right, everybody, take good care of yourselves and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Blister Cinematic Podcast. Bye, everybody.